0: got a song for you. Maybe if you've been coming to a church for a long time, you might remember this one. It's an old classic. Let's see if I can remember how it goes. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed for his the horse and rider thrown into the sea i will sing unto the lord for he has triumphed gloriously the horse and rider thrown into the sea my lord my god my strength my song has now become my victory my lord my god my strength my song has now become my victory the lord is god and i will praise him my father's god and i will exalt him lord is god and i will praise him my father's god and i will exalt him anyone remember that remember that there you go Uh, maybe that'll be on my greatest hits album one day uh when i became a christian in 1990 Uh, and started going to church, that was one of the most played songs uh, that we had, along with Shine, Jesus Shine, uh, and uh, Meekness and Majesty, and uh, I can't remember, there was another Graham Kendrick one uh, from the same period, but anyway, I had no idea what that song was about. (laughs) Uh, We just sang it all the time, it was this happy song, and I don't know why horses and riders were frolicking in the waves (laughs) uh, in this song, and why we were singing about it. Imagine my surprise a few years later when I was asked to preach my first sermon uh, from Exodus chapter 15, and it turned out it wasn't a song from the 1970s AD, uh, it was from probably around the 1970s BC, uh, written by Moses about the parting of the Red Sea. And while it's certainly a song of rejoicing, it's not about good times splashing at a water park on your horse uh it's the pure joy of being saved by god as they watched the bodies of those who would destroy them floating on the waves thousands of their enemies engulfed and destroyed by the mighty arm of god i'm not sure if that's the tune they would have used i don't remember much about that first sermon that i preached and it's probably good that I don't still have it. But I I do remember being absolutely petrified uh, standing in front of a mighty horde of 20 old people at Como Presbyterian Church. Uh, The same dread maybe that the Israelites felt when they saw the Egyptian charioteers. But I also remember that the pulpit at Como Presbyterian was shaped exactly like an ancient chariot. And there I was standing in it, white-knuckled, gripping the sides uh, in grim death, holding on, uh, much like I imagine the Egyptian charioteers did when they saw the wall of water collapsing on them. But unlike those charioteers, I survived the experience. Now, I don't know what you might be facing right now or what you may one day have to face, uh, but I want to tell you today, as Moses told the people on that day, Don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. Let's pray. Father Almighty, you are the Lord of hosts. And so as we see your unstoppable power again today, teach us not to be afraid of the things of this world, not to be afraid of people, not to be afraid of the opposition that might come at us, the problems we face, but teach us instead to have a holy fear of you our God, our Saviour, that we might know how to stand firm and see your salvation. Amen. Well, last week we finished off the last of the ten plagues which God had brought upon Egypt. Uh, The Israelites had been captive slaves for hundreds of years, groaning in their misery, longing for something better. And if you've been following along, God heard their cries and the moment has come. The 10th plague was the final straw, the death of Pharaoh's son and all the firstborn sons of Egypt by the angel of death. It must have been a haunting night for that nation as death came to every house which did not have its doorposts painted in land's blood. Pharaoh called for Moses in the middle of the night. He begged Moses to gather up the Israelites and to just go. He said, go, take your people take your flocks as you've asked for, in fact, take all the riches of Egypt if you must, just get out of here. But then very strangely, we didn't focus on it last week, he'd asked Moses in his final breath, bless me as well. That is a weird thing for Pharaoh to say. And so it was that finally this man who had defied Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel, was begging a blessing to be kept safe from that powerful God who brought such devastation on him and his kingdom. And Israel left 600,000 men of fighting age, plus the women, children, and and the old folks, maybe two million people walked out with their belongings, their flocks, and all the riches of Egypt. That was the exodus. That's, That's what the book's named after. That's the exodus where they walked out. God delivered them that night. From slavery and as we pick up the story today uh, that Exodus is marked by three very striking comments I think in chapter 13 which tell us about the state of play between Israel and God I and mean, this is the God who just saved them but what's going on between them the first comments in chapter 13 and verse 17 when Pharaoh let the people go God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine uh, country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. Uh, Here's a map uh, of where we're going from and to Egypt's on the left and the region of Goshen that the Israelites lived in is at the top of Egypt, there above the Red Sea, above where the uh, the canal goes today. Uh, and I don't know if you can see uh, they, they've got to head up uh, to the other well, which way's your way that way uh, up to the land of Canaan, which is Israel today. Um, but they have to pass through the Philistine territory. And I don't know if you can uh, see. Uh, what the name of the city is that they would have to pass through. Gaza. It's the same Gaza Strip that they're still fighting over this very day. It was there then, but 4,000 years ago, God decided not to take them that way, but instead take them on a long and winding path, which uh, is the red dotted line which starts off going down what looks like the wrong side of the Red Sea, the West Bank. And the reason he gives is that he's sure that at the first sign of trouble, they'll chicken out and run back to Egypt he's just delivered them from. That is, God doesn't trust his people to trust him. He, is he right not to trust them? Well, we'll see shortly. Uh, the second striking comment ends in verse 19, and it's, a, it's just this odd thing that's noted. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear an oath. He'd said, God will surely come to your aid, then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. How weird's that? Uh, of all the things, and the night that you're being free from slavery when the king has just said, get out of my country... Where's those bones? Where's that skeleton we've got lying around here somewhere? Uh, literally a skeleton in the closet. I don't know whose closet was in, but uh, they pick up this one particular body, whether it's mummified, who knows, but they, they bring it with them. Now you might recall, who is this Joseph? He's, he's one of the patriarchs of Israel from hundreds of years before. Abraham's great-grandson. And in fact it was Joseph who was the whole reason that they came to Egypt to start with. 430 years ago he brought the family to Egypt to escape famine and from there, hundreds of years later they had become slaves. But it's fascinating that even Joseph way back then suspected that they were going to end up in trouble. And he also trusted that In that moment, God would come for his people and bring them home. God will come to your aid, he said. So he left very specific instructions in his will, ordering his bones be kept and taken uh, when they go back to the land that God had promised Abraham. And even more fascinating, 430 years later, the Israelites remember. Well, at the very least, Moses did, because they still have his bones to fulfil his wishes. And I think that sheds a whole new light, doesn't it, on these events, doesn't it? That they were planned beforehand. And and it shows that Joseph had real faith in God. That's what true faith looks like. He knew trouble was coming, but he trusted that God would come. He trusted God would save and he trusted that he would be buried with his forebears in the land that God had promised. In fact, in the very same grave as Abraham and Sarah and, and Isaac and And that's the kind of faith that Israel is going to be called on to have through what happens, but which they keep failing to have. A complete confidence in God's purposes and promises. God always keeps his promises, doesn't he? Uh, Trust him, you can stake your life on him. But there's a third striking comment as they escape in verse 20 of chapter 13. After leaving Sukkoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day the Lord... Yahweh, that is, went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. I and mean, how weird is that? How good is that? God didn't leave his people to work out where they were going or what they were doing. He didn't abandon them which makes it all the more surprising that they don't trust him when it comes to it. It's not like God's nowhere to be seen. Uh, There is this whopping great pillar of, imagine a tornado or something like that, of cloud and a fire that's marching in front of you at your exact walking pace, uh, showing you exactly where, not your normal everyday sight, God is leading them. Now there's a lot of confusion about God's guidance today, and, and we might wish, I don't know if you've ever wished, that things are as clear for you as they were for them, uh, that, that maybe God should give us something like a great pillar of cloud or fire to show us exactly what the right decisions are to make. You know, should I marry or not, I'm going to put a yes or no, whichever one, fire, you know, uh, would that work? Uh, but mind you, that, that didn't help. The Israelites trust God anymore they still doubted him even though they knew exactly where to go but imagine asking God for guidance about whether to marry uh, who, you know is this the girl you want me to marry or not and a fire of pillars and fire suddenly appears above her head um, I think you'd be running away uh, rather than proposing <laughs> uh, as quick as possible people sometimes say that they want God's guidance in decisions that they've got to make but very often the issue isn't that they don't know what god wants them to do they just don't want to do it Uh, of course god guides us we have his wisdom on every decision that we could make in life It's, it's right here in his word in marriage and job choices retirement living uh, dealing with people, uh, dealing with grief. We we don't need omens or fiery pillars to know what God wants from us because we know where he's guiding us, where he's guiding us to heaven and he's guiding us into holiness on the way. That's what he wants. He's guiding you to love him first and above uh, above all other things, love him with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind and all your strength. We've heard that's the first and greatest commandment and to love your neighbour as much as you love yourself. But there have been moments in history when God has done extraordinary things to guide his people to the exact place that he wanted them to be, particularly at major turning points of salvation history like this moment. And his guidance was totally obvious. Even Blind Freddy couldn't have mistaken that this was the supernatural guidance of God on We're going after that thing. And where he leads them is not particularly comfortable. It's not where they thought that they might be heading. In fact, they will wonder why on earth God has brought them here and they'll even start to despair of God's wisdom and goodness in bringing them here. But God knows exactly what he's doing and we need to know that. God still knows what he's doing now as he did then. Uh, Sometimes he will lead us into situations where we're very uncomfortable, where we're completely out of our depth and where it will look like there's no other way out and in those moments God wants us to trust him. Where does God lead Israel? Well, he leads them down what appears to be the wrong side of the Red Sea. It's not where they want to go. But he has a particular plan in mind, though the Israelites themselves think he must be nuts. In fact, they come to that conclusion because they get wind of the fact that Pharaoh has changed his mind and he's not happy. We're not told if it was hours later, a day later or a week later, but Pharaoh's hard heart, which had been broken by the loss of his son, hardens right back up when he realises he's lost his entire workforce. And so he amasses an enormous army to hunt them down, thousands of troops spearheaded by 600 elite veterans, all in war chariots, a very powerful and effective means of making war. It's kind of the tank of the ancient world. And they chase their quarry and have them trapped on the edge of the Red Sea. So from the Israelite point of view, they're in the worst possible place that they could be. They're trapped between a rock and a hard place. They stand, uh, wherever they go, it's death. They stand and be slaughtered on land or go and drown yourselves in the sea. There's nowhere else to run. And it's that moment uh, that God's view of them is proven right. That God thought they couldn't be trusted. Well, look at the conclusion they jumped to. Chapter 14, verse 11, they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? I mean, what a bitter statement is that. What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. that's, That's bitter, isn't it? And so God's fears about Israel's unfaithfulness are pretty well founded. But it's not like they should be thinking like that. They've just witnessed over the last two months just how powerful their God is. He's wreaked havoc and destruction on Egypt. And he's spared Israel through the plagues, as we saw. They weren't affected by the flies and the death the and the boils and everything else. Uh, that God had blacked out the sun for three whole days. He killed the sons of Egypt in one night. What is there that this God cannot do and will not do to save? What problem is too big for him to overcome? Well, they can think of two problems that God can't overcome, the Egyptian army and the Red Sea. But there are no problems too great for God. Despite their fear and distrust, God will bear with them and he will save them nonetheless. I think if we were God, we might have thought, well, if that's their attitude, well let's give it to them. But he doesn't. He's full of loving, kindness, and mercy. But it's not just his loving, kindness, compassion that's on display. It's the whole glory, as John mentioned when he read it, it's the whole glory of the immortal, invisible, God only wise that's on display (laughs) and what he's about to do he's going to do explicitly he says for his own glory did you notice when john read it three times god says i will gain glory for myself chapter 4 verse uh, 14 verse 4 but i will gain glory for myself through pharaoh and all his army and the egyptians will know that i am the lord that is, I am Yahweh. I am, I am. As we heard what that God's name means. Verse 17, I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and horsemen. Verse 18, the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. God has guided them here. He has led them to this place, though he knows they won't trust him, so that his glory will be manifest. God... Is on about his own glory. We saw that yesterday at the big day in. Uh, That was great. Uh, But in everything that happens, God is in it for his glory. And we've got to remember that. Everything is more about him than it is about us. Those who he saves will see and praise him. Those he destroys will see and know that he is the Lord. There is no other. And finally, Moses understands He knows God will glorify himself, and though he does not know how God will save them, he knows he will, and that no power of hell or scheme of man can ever stop God or get in his way. It's very different, isn't it, to how Moses started before the plagues when he first met God, isn't it? Remember Moses at the burning bush, begging God, send someone, not me, (laughs) no, anyone else, He was afraid. But now look what he says to Israel in verse 13. Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance Yahweh will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today you will never see again. Yahweh will fight for you. When you've got God fighting for you what's the opposition matter? You only need be still. You, you don't need to do anything is what he's saying. How's that for trust? How's that for faith? Moses has seen all that God's done and he knows that God is wiser than himself. And he had a pretty good model in Joseph, his forebear, whose bones he's carrying. And so God saves even as he brings glory to himself. So following God's command, Moses lifts the staff stretches his hand up and out of the sea, the, the, the pillar moves to the other side to, th- to block them from the Egyptians and so there's no uh, uh, military engagement yet uh, and, and he holds the staff up and the waters start to part. Um, here is Yahweh using the powers of nature to control nature. I mean, how does it work? He, it didn't happen, as we might recall. It didn't just suddenly go like this and part. Uh, we're told here that uh, it took all night. Verse 21, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all night the Lord drove back the sea with a strong east wind. He blew it back. And and he turned it into dry land. The waters were divided and the Israelites went through on dry land. I mean, I don't know if that sounds more impressive to you or less impressive. That God uses a wind, a very strong wind, if He's going to part a sea with it. And a very focused wind, right, down that tunnel. Uh, Here is Yahweh using the powers of nature to control it. Not every miracle of God is inexplicable from a mechanical point of view but this is the power of God who controls nature and bends nature to his will as the Creator and so they cross. But not only will he control the forces of nature to save his people in such a dramatic way but he will use those same forces to conquer the Egyptian army. They give chase. Uh, God starts off by throwing them into confusion to allow more time for the Israelites to cross. They can't drive straight. Then he damages the chariots. They start throwing axles. So they slow right down. And then even the elite soldiers start to panic. In fact, they're so panicked, what's their words? Let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt, right? We know Yahweh's against us, (laughs) but they're too late. Verse 26, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back. Over the Egyptians and the chariots and horsemen, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak, the sea, I imagine in one dramatic fell swoop just whoo, went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back, covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That must have been an awesome thing. Spooky. Even eerie. You imagine walking through on dry land, divided walls of water. I get weirded out walking through the the thing at the aquarium underwater. There's no glass holding this back. Seeing the powerful forces piled either side which could extinguish their lives and which would soon literally rain destruction down on their enemies. And then to see that happen. What would you be thinking? What would you be feeling? Well, we know what the Israelites felt. Two totally appropriate things which... On first glance might seem at odds with each other, but both completely the right things to feel. One, there is an awestruck fear at the awesome power of God who destroys the forces of the greatest armies in the world. And the George (laughs) is... The second, a profound and great rejoicing at the wonder of salvation and the victory that he gives his people. And when the Israelites saw the great power of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and they put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Awestruck struck fear, rightly so. God is not to be trifled with. He is not to be opposed. He is to be worshipped. This is God who is a warrior, who fights, who destroys, Who defeats his enemies he is to be feared above all other gods i don't know if there's anyone you fear a boss someone at work an ex a competitor someone in the neighborhood thieves what does jesus say even if the world opposes you i tell you friends do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more i tell you whom you should fear fear him who after killing the body can throw you into hell yes i tell you fear him it's right to have a healthy fear of god if there's no hint of fear of god in you it may be that you don't comprehend who he really is this is the god who can destroy armies in a moment with the forces of nature But at the same time, and it seems almost paradoxical, you can rejoice in him and love him and adore him and delight in this God because this is the God who uses that power and might to save. And that's where the song from the start of the talk comes in because they're all standing there dumbstruck in fear of the Lord who destroys. And Moses starts to sing. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider thrown into the sea. I don't know if they joined in. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and And then by the end, they're all cheering. As the song goes on, he sings of God's vengeance, he sings of God's unfailing love. And they're bound up together, you can't separate them. He sings of the fact that God will bring them home, he will fulfill his promises, he will bring them to that land. And he will make his name great. And here's the final line of Moses' song, which didn't make it into the nineteen seventies one. The Lord will reign forever and ever. That is, Yahweh will reign forever, and ever. I am will reign forever and ever. Is that the song in your heart? Do you long for his reign? Do you love his reign? Do you rejoice and fear this God? who destroys the enemy and saves his people. This is the God who not only overcomes the power of man as he drowned the mighty army of Egypt, it's the same God who one day would, on another day when all hope was gone, would destroy the devil and sin, even death itself, in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and in his glorious resurrection. This is the same God, this is God, Fear him, love him, trust him. He is the Lord who reigns forever and ever. Don't doubt him. Don't be bitter when he leads you to uncomfortable places, which he may well do. Don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the deliverance that he will bring. Father, we pray that we would trust you. Help us to trust even when Our hearts are so prone to not trusting and to bitterness and to doubt. Help us to be like Joseph, who knew when you made promises, you would keep them. To be like Moses, who learned after his own fear at what might happen, to not be afraid. In fact, help us to be those who call on others not to be afraid, but to trust the Lord Jesus and to stand firm. Amen. We're going to sing.